From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The new state historian has a vision to diversify our thinking about the heroes and sheroes who've shaped Colorado history. I've always been curious about the past, engaged with the past, because for most African Americans, the past is very much present. And because I'm an optimist, I believe that a knowledge of the past will help us understand our present and form the future. My discussion with Dr. Claire Oberon Garcia in front of an audience at the Southern Colorado Public Media Center. One of the things that I'm really loving about the job is how much I'm learning. Plus, how her job as an English professor informs her role as state historian. That an understanding of history is important for everyone, every citizen, every child, just because it's a way of knowing ourselves collectively. Today is Giving Tuesday. On this global day of giving, you can make an impact right here at home. If you have been relying on the healing power of music, maybe even more now than before, help support CPR Classical with a Giving Tuesday donation. Colorado Public Radio exists because of community support, because of your generosity. Make your Giving Tuesday gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado has a new state historian, and we're in for a real treat today because we get to sit down and get to know her better, who she is and what she plans to do during her tenure. Dr. Claire Oberon Garcia has been a professor at Colorado College for more than three decades, and she brings to the role a fresh focus on Black history. She joins us now before a live audience, I should add, at our Southern Colorado Public Media Center. Dr. Garcia, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thanks so much for having me. There's so much to talk about, so let's just jump right in. My first thought is you're an English professor, and the news release put out by History Colorado announcing your tenure notes that even in fulfilling this role, you still teach a full load of classes. But now you're the state historian. From your perspective, how do those two roles fit together? So that's, yes, I think I'm, I'm the first non-historian to be the Colorado state historian. And the roles fit together because, first of all, I consider myself an interdisciplinary scholar. Mm. So much of my teaching and my research is actually involves historical research a lot of times and in the archives throughout the Black Atlantic, from Martinique to Paris to mm. to um, Yale, the Beinecke at Yale. So I consider myself an interdisciplinary scholar, as most Black scholars are, because we have to pay attention, even if we're focusing on literature or primarily looking at text, that we need to know the history. We're very aware, as Black scholars, that a knowledge of our past is very much tied to the present as well as our future in terms of shaping our future. And so I think that um, within Black Studies, it's very common to be an interdisciplinary scholar, even if you're housed in a particular spot. And my relationship with History Colorado is trying to think back when it started. I think perhaps it was when we were living down in Pueblo Mm. And I was invited to be on a panel of, um, this was part of Women's Month 
um, March presentation that was put on by the wonderful, the wonderful little museum down there. And that's where I first met Dawn DePrince, who's now the CEO of History Colorado. And what I loved about that panel was that it showed how important history is outside of academia. And so the other panelists were people, I would call them community historians or even family mm. historians who had these rich, not only had knowledge of these rich and wonderful stories, but were committed to sharing them in different venues, you know, not just within a museum's walls or not just within academia. And so it really excited me. Um, and that's where I just thought, Dylan DePrince is a wonderful person, but how it really expanded the idea and notion of what history is and how it's disseminated. And it also focused on women's leadership and that women's leadership doesn't always look like what we think of as, you know, you're not a general or you don't have a particular title, but that you're a leader within your community. You have power, you have influence, but it's not necessarily through the conventional channels. And so that expansive idea of history and public history and the whole event was really exciting to me. And then I was involved for several years on the advisory committee for what was the Byers Evans House, but now is the Colorado Center for Women's History. So we did things like handed out research grants and really talked about transforming the Byers Evans House, which had been before, very focused on, because um, obviously the Byers Evans were part of the, the elite of our history, mm. but really expanded the notion, like it's not just a nice place to come and have tea and see how the other half lived at the time. So I loved seeing how they were expanding by, for example, focusing on the people who worked in that house, you know, the people who kept the kitchen going, the people who did the sweeping and the because um, they're very much part of Colorado history and not just the, the mistresses of, of the house. And then um, I was called in again when History Colorado asked several scholars to um, give some advice on how to publicly present the Ku Klux Klan ledgers. I don't know how well known it is among people even who live in Colorado that Colorado was a KKK state. And the height of it was in the 20s. And there were actually scholars who say that it was, Colorado was a state that was the most deeply KKK because they had the governorship, the mayor of the city mm. of, of Denver, a lot of city councils throughout the state were KKK. And one of the things that I learned from looking at the ledgers was that people from all walks of life, from bellboys and waiters and up, up to judges and lawyers and various professional people, and of course, business people. So um, that was a really exciting conversation. And I met some of the History Colorado staff and uh, other scholars, other historians and scholars. And so that was wonderful. And then I was invited to join the State Historians Council, which has been remodeled to be more aligned with History Colorado's current mission, which is to be more exclusive than historically they have been. 
um, to have more stories from all of the peoples who make up collectively the history of our state. And, um, and so I joined the Historians Council. And because of the ro this new model, the state historian is rotating. Like in the past, I think it was almost like a lifelong <laughs> appointment because there would be, and usually historically they were, mm. you know, white men who specialized in Western history and were the ultimate experts on all things um, Colorado history. But this new, more inclusive vision really wants to tap into scholars from a variety of backgrounds, from a variety of perspectives. And what I would like to focus on, um, given that I'm a Black Studies scholar, is looking at Colorado history of all its peoples, not just the, the African Americans, but in larger context of what has been going on in different historical periods. So even looking at the rise, like why was the Ku Klux Klan so prominent at that particular time, like in the 20s, and how did it, why was it so attractive in Colorado? And I think part of why it was so attractive was they, the Klan by then had sort of expanded its mission, was very anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, um, didn't like Catholics. Um, so they, they had sort of expanded their agenda because given the small population of black people in Colorado that just going after mm. black people wouldn't explain its attraction for so many people from <laughs> Not so many white people from, yeah, <laughs> so many walks of life. And so I think it even looking at certainly the African American experience in larger context, what drove African Americans to the to the West and what their experiences were, because there is a kind of mythology that all the bad stuff of course, happened in the South or maybe, you know, northern cities, but the West, the, there was still the color line, but it wasn't drawn as clearly or unambiguously as it was elsewhere. So well, um, I find it interesting that you mentioned the Klan because uh, I moved here from the South. Yeah. And so, again, you kind of think, oh, this was the South. You think about the civil rights movement and all that. But I did not know about the impact of the Klan until a field trip with one of my kids to History Colorado. <laughs> and I was shocked yeah. to walk into that space and see a Klan robe. And I've been intrigued, you know, ever since to learn more about that because it surprised me. Because again, as you pointed out, we tend to think this was all concentrated in one part of the country or certain parts of the country and not necessarily Colorado. That makes me wonder... As a professor, how do you think your time in the classroom with students interacting, just just like me going on this field trip and being with young people and learning, what about that informs what you do? And how do you think it impacts you now as the state historian? Well, I think like a lot of Colorado college professors, our research interests and our teaching are very closely intertwined. And mm. so unlike other like big universities where classes are 400 people and you have to um, you have to teach a certain number of classes but you put a whole bunch of work onto the graduate teaching assistants that um, actually I find teaching very generative to my research and there's sort of a mutual synchronicity there. And because I am committed. Obviously, I've devoted my life to sharing knowledge, to pursuing knowledge. 
I'm always amazed, like the older I get, the less <laughs> I realize that I know, but I love exploring questions, not just with young people, but with neighbors and family and friends. And I've always, I think because I did grow up black in the United States, I've always been very aware of and interested in interrogating history, especially given that for people of my generation, the so-called master narrative of our history, one, didn't have me in it except as enslaved. Mm. Um, and and that was back in the past, and now it's all, we realize the error of our ways, and now everything and is fixed. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and sort of Dr. Martin Luther King put the bow on it, like tidied <laughs> up that ugly Southern stuff that was going on, and now we can drink out of whatever water fountain we would like to drink out of. But so I've always... Um, been curious about the past, engaged with the past, because for most African Americans, the past is very much present. And because I'm, I'm an optimist, I believe that a knowledge of the past will help us understand our present and form the future. We can decide who we want to be collectively. What are your students talking about in terms of hot topics and history? Uh, actually, I think probably the hottest topic right now is the Middle East. Mm. And because the history of that, the relationship that even predates 1948 between Palestinians and Israelis is really, I think, dramatizing in a brutal and terrible way the effects of the past and past relationships. And so students are are really engaged with that. They're also as, as always concerned with social justice issues, um, both locally and nationally. And the environment, too, is a big concern. And again, that has, like just about every big hot topic has a historical dimension, starting with the question, what did we do to get here? Exactly. <laughs> or what happened that we ended up here? I'm just curious, do they all know that you're the state historian? And how do they feel about being taught by the state historian? <laughs> well, it was very funny. For one thing, it's, um, it's relatively new. So I've actually just finished my second class as also being the state historian. And um, because Colorado College is on this unique academic, well, it's not unique, but very few people do the one class at a time for three and a half weeks. And so um, I didn't mention it to my first class, but some had seen the announcement and they, of course, were curious, like, what do you do? You know, what, <laughs> what does that entail? You know, do you get a block off? <laughs> you know? And then um, I also didn't mention it. I was team teaching my last course and my colleague mentioned it. And there was something because I had some task I had had to do and yeah, I think I I had to come in late to a class because I had had a meeting up in History Colorado the day before. And um, I just apologized, you know, saying I had to do this. But today, which was the last day of the block, one of my students came in with her final exam. And she said, what is this state historian thing? <laughs> I was like, oh. And, and she said, because Alexi said, you know, it's such an important thing. But then when you came back from Denver, you just sort of like, and she said, murmured like this, like, oh, I had state historians. <laughs> That's so cool. What do you do? So um, I'd be yeah. impressed. <laughs> yeah. And I think that a lot of people 
don't aren't aware of that there are state historians. And I think if they are aware, they might have the image that I had, that it's the ultimate authority on all things Colorado, mm -hmm. um, which I'm not. But that's one of the things that I'm really loving about the job is how much I'm learning and how much I'm able to like connect various threads. Well, I've lived in Colorado now for about 40 years. Wow. And so of course, you know, lived experience, other people's stories um, in the community, but it's an opportunity to connect a lot of threads and see, you know, my own experience as a black person in Colorado in a broader context. And as you mentioned, I think, you know, for a lot of us, when we envision the state historian, again, as you mentioned, it's previously been held mostly by men and mostly white men, and you were neither. What do you think you bring to the role? Well, I think, first of all, I bring a perspective, an interdisciplinary perspective that's quite broad, not just national, but international. So I do a lot of work in the Black Atlantic, which involves Europe, the United States, the Caribbean, and West Africa. So I think even just having that broader space, like looking at con like Colorado in the context of the world, is something I bring to it. And then just questions. I think the questions that I have are perhaps different than mm. what traditional state historians might have. And I think I'm so committed to the idea that History is important, that an understanding of history is important for everyone, every citizen, every child, just because it's a way of knowing ourselves collectively. And I think the how important history as a discipline is has been exemplified by the recent debates mm. about history curricula, mm. um, about what, what should be taught, what shouldn't who counts, who doesn't, when you're talking about national or regional history. And so I feel that the stakes are high, and as Henry James said, like another turn of the screw. Um, so I feel even more committed. I feel a, very much a sense of urgency, especially as I see histories misrepresented or dismissed or silenced. Yeah, to your point, these so-called culture wars have erupted across the country and here in Colorado. And these are heated debates about, which, as you said, what can and cannot be taught. For example, in Florida, the State Department has banned high schoolers from taking an advanced placement black history course on the grounds that it lacks, quote, educational value and historical accuracy. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> I think they're wrong. So one, of course, African-American history has value and not just to African-Americans because it's part of our national history. Everyone is implicated in African-American history. Secondly, I think um, even though people on both sides of the issue will wring their hands about the politicization of history. I think history, ever since it became an area or a field, has always been politicized. History has always been used to either justify particular actions or keep in place certain structures of power or certain relationships. 
um, control over the modern curriculum has always been a very powerful tool for promoting certain interpretations or ideologies. So I think the politicization of history is, is nothing new. Ron DeSantis did not invent it. Um, but I think what is important is to have a commitment to sharing stories and respecting stories from different perspectives. I think, unfortunately, what's happened recently in academia is a kind of questioning just of basic facts. Like, we all know that, that facts are really stories. Mm. <laughs> and I think that we need to have a more nuanced understanding of what stories are and how stories work. Because basically what history is, is a collection of stories around certain Absolutely. events or peoples or, or locations. And so I think having a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the power of storytelling in terms of identity formation, whether it's individual or, um, or collective, in terms of how what's remembered collectively, what's institutionalized, so I think that we can find a way of understanding history as stories without completely abandoning the idea of, well, it happened or it didn't happen, and the historian's only responsibility is to figure out what happened and to document what happened and justify what happened, because all stories, of course, are also interpretive. And so even the questions that you might ask about a certain event are changed and contextualized depending on when you're asking it? Are you asking it five days after the event, two years after the event, 150 years after the event? Um, so the questions, I think we also have to accept that questions and context will determine the questions that we ask, that we feel compelled to find an answer to. And then I think last I'll say that I'm a humanist, you know, and I believe that there's a value in human imagination, human lived experience. I'm always struck by human resourcefulness, human imagination, the variety of lived experiences around the globe over centuries and centuries that we've all been together in this space. And so I think fundamentally, knowing history, especially of other cultures or peoples that may be different from us is really important. It's, it's like often very entertaining, but I think it's also very significant in affirming who we are as human beings individually and collectively. So you've decided to focus your tenure as state historian on exploring the experiences of women of the Black Atlantic in the beginning of the 20th century. And it's a subject you've explored in publications, conference presentations, and academic classrooms. What exactly does that mean, women of the Black Atlantic, and what attracted you to that topic? So the Black Atlantic is basically the arena for enslavement and the slave trade. So it started with, of course, um, the French would call it the French Atlantic Triangle, where they would bring goods from Europe to trade for human beings take them to the Caribbean or 
you know, in the case of other countries, to the so-called new <laughs> world, which, of course, it was new to some people, but not to the people <laughs> who were there, and then sell and bring the, the profits back and, and products back, such as sugar, to Europe. So that was a dynamic trade triangle. And that, of course, starting in 1619 was the first time that we know of that Africans, people from the continent of Africa, set foot on the American continent. And so what I see my role at History Colorado as supporting the mission of including more stories, more perspectives. I was certainly African-American, but also indigenous, Latino. And I say that History Colorado in recent years has done a wonderful job doing that, expanding what we think of as Colorado history. And so some specific things that I want to be involved in are, um, the first is, and that has impact here in Colorado Springs, that History Colorado has gotten a grant, a history preservation grant from the National Park Service that's focused on finding sites, buildings, spaces that represent important things about the history of underrepresented people and peoples in Colorado. And so the aim of the grant activity is to identify these sites and to try to get, I think in Colorado Springs, they're trying to apply for both state and national historic registry designations. And so there's been a study done that I just got like <laughs> about 10 days ago that I need to read that identified several potential sites that I totally wasn't aware of, but are significant to black Colorado history right here in Colorado Springs. But they're doing this throughout the state. And then I'm also super excited about the 150-250 celebrations that are coming up. So and they're just, of course, in the beginning stages. Can you explain what that is? Yes, I will explain what that is. The sort of shorthand is that it's a celebration, but really the 150-250 Commission says it's identifying, celebrating, and spreading knowledge about the historical contributions and significant events and peoples for Colorado, but also for the nation. So the 250 is the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And of course, we being the centennial state, it's the 150th mm. birthday of our being a state, part of the United States. And so there's a main commission that's based in Denver that oversees regional activities. I think there are perhaps six or seven different regions. The Pikes Peak region is one of them that will be, again, identifying, celebrating, acknowledging, because I... We all know there are a lot of aspects of history that are pretty traumatizing and not something you would celebrate, but you can celebrate the endurance of, mm -hmm. of the, the people who were involved with it or the foresight or the community's response to identified wrongs. So that includes not just African-Americans, but indigenous, of course, Latino, the Asian diaspora, which is a lot of people don't immediately know that people from the Asian diaspora have played a significant role throughout the state and in the state's histories, but also LGBTQ plus people. So it's really, again, consistent with History Colorado's commitment to expanding our sense of Colorado history and our sense of ourselves as Coloradoans. So that's the 
I'm really excited to be involved in the local 150, 250 to figure out what are we going to do? Is there a story in history so far that you've come across that really has inspired you, particularly as it relates to your platform? Yes. So History Colorado has an exhibit on the dry. And I heard vaguely of the dry of um, like a family that was led, it seems led by the matriarch, who just homesteaded out in what seems like an impossible terrain. (laughs) But again, driven by dreams of freedom and self-sufficiency, um, established themselves in this 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 place that was both geographically as well as socially not the most welcoming place, but created a whole like settled a family and generations and investment in in this space. And it's just the exhibit has a lot of photographs, historical photographs, and letters, and even a short documentary that had been done by one of the descendants of members of the the Dry. And I actually got to meet some members of the family down at the Pueblo County Fair in August when they were giving out the Centennial Farming Awards. And so it was just one of those stories, like I thought, how did they do it? Like, how did they think or imagine creating a whole life and a way of sustaining themselves, not just... um, materially, but also emotionally and spiritually. And again, such uh, a minimalist, (laughs) minimalist. It was an area that was very hard to farm. Like it took real will and grit and understanding of working with the land and working Mm -hmm. with the, the weather and that they did it for generations just amazed me. So you mentioned this earlier, but little background, since 1924, History Colorado has appointed Colorado's state historian to preserve, interpret, and share our state's past. Five years ago, History Colorado created the State Historians Council to better reflect and serve the many perspectives, cultures, and places that come together in Colorado. The council includes five scholars from five different institutions around the state, and each serves in the role of state historian for one year. Over time, the role of state historian has largely been filled by men. And now we are seeing this new era of embracing diversity. And also, I'm, I'm guessing the shorter tenure allows more perspectives to be a part of this experience. Would you agree with that? Yes. And though, even though when I look at, you know, my agenda or what I'd like to do, I think it's so short, like, give me three years or five years. Yes. Or, but um, of course, I'll stay, still stay on the State Historians Council. And I think that group of scholars is a wonderful group for like our conversations are so thought provoking, inspiring, sometimes frustrating. Um, so there's a lot of amazing intellectual energy, mm. firepower, but also just commitment that I, I want to be a part of that group as long as they will have me. I don't know. I'm hearing a podcast in that. The, 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 the historians <laughs> meet and debate. <laughs> so mm-hmm. let's talk a bit about your story. I understand that you, like me, came here to Colorado due to your husband's work. Mm-hmm. Tell us, when you moved here, 
what do you remember most about the transition to Colorado? Probably just how it was very culturally distinct in a way that I hadn't imagined because there's so much homogenization, you know, nationally. And there's sometimes like I'm out, if I'm out on Powers or Academy, I think I could be in Alexandria, Virginia, or, you and know, these are streets here in the spring. Those, yeah. Well, yeah, these are, are streets that have like the big box stores and, ah. and everything. So, but the, and I knew that cultures, you know, grow out of particular environments, but I was really surprised at how distinctly Western <laughs> Colorado was. <laughs> oh, are you talking so about was. the cowboy so, boots and the... Well, yeah, there's the style, too, that people would wear cowboy boots and hats to galas, for example. But, but I think more <laughs> on a day-to-day level, I do see very much, especially in Colorado Springs, a libertarian streak. Mm. Um, that's sort of like ranging from the people who, what right has the government to tell me whether I can drive or not? <laughs> to, <laughs> to just a notion that um, individuals can control their own destiny. And that's both exciting and, and scary. Also, I, frankly, the lack of a large and diverse black population. I did spend most of my girlhood in Washington, D.C., mm. where there's, a, of course, a very large, complex, diverse in terms of class, culture, economics, um, even relation to the, the African diaspora, you know, from immigrants to, you know, fifth or sixth generation Washingtonians. So that su- surprised me a bit. And, and the general, it's, it's a bit different now because Colorado Springs has been growing more and more diverse, but I remember even the um, paucity of Jewish people, you know, like in, I had a lot of Jewish friends and, you know, friends from all sorts of backgrounds. And it was the first time I had been in a really predominantly, predominantly white um, social setting. Well, you, like me now, call Colorado home proudly. Mm-hmm. What do you love about the Centennial State and what makes it feel like home now? There are a lot of things I love. I love like being able just to look up at Pike's Peak because I find even just looking at it refreshes me and grounds me. So if I'm you know, stressed out after a long work day or, you know, even doing my aerobic walking around just to, <laughs> I, I always think of that, that biblical phrase about I lift my eyes up unto the hills and to lift my eyes up to Pikes Peak, which I wish they would change the name to Taba Mountain, <laughs> frankly. That, that's a plug for okay. something else on, on my agenda as a citizen of Colorado. But, um, but yeah, just being able to look up and and see the mountains. I also like the spirit of, um, I had called a libertarian before, but it's also a spirit of self-invention mm-hmm. and reinvention and reinvention and reinvention that I find still is very fascinating. And it has been true in recent years that we've had a lot of people coming from all over. Absolutely. Um, and so we've, even Colorado Springs now, I consider very diverse economically, culturally, ethnically, 
even internationally. And I've been happy to see that kind of growth and complexity in the city. So, um, so yeah. Well, I don't know. I think Coach Prime's trying to bring everybody to Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe they'll find out there's more to Colorado than the Buffaloes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they will find that out. So now we're going to take a few brief questions from the audience. Hi, my name is Latrice Owens. I know there's quite a few museums here in Colorado, and I feel like it's hard to talk about Colorado history without speaking about Native Americans. So I was wondering if there are any good museums uh, or places to visit that you would recommend for someone to go if they were trying to find out more about Native American history. Yeah, actually a place that I have not been to yet myself, but I think it's down in Montrose, the Ute Indian Museum. I met um, the director a couple of years ago, I think maybe even before it was, at least in its present form, but I think it sounds, everything I've heard about it sounds absolutely amazing. And of course it was, all of the exhibits are always done in close consultation with, I pretty much created by the members of the Ute and Northern Ute tribes. So that's what I would recommend, and which again, I haven't made it out to Montrose yet, but I've heard that's very significant and moving and important. Great. Thank you. My name is Wynn Miller. I live in the neighborhood here in Colorado Springs. And I wonder if you could tell us, you know, history is long, even though we're only 150 years old. There's quite a bit before that, but there's also very recent history. How does your experience as the second lady of Colorado inform your view of historical events? So one, and I, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, I really believe in decentralizing Denver with all due respect to the wonderful work that's been done, especially by community historians in Denver and by the History Colorado Center. So um, I really would like to see more stories, more programming, you know, building on the wonderful work that our regional museums who are part, also part of history, Colorado, like down in Fort Garland and Pueblo. I'd like to see them ramped up even more, like being able to spread their message and their knowledge even, even more. And of course, that takes money, has budgetary implications, but also to encourage people like Colorado was a big state. So a big thing for me is also just access. You know, there's a lot of wonderful stuff Mm. throughout the state, but that it's very hard to access if you don't have Mm. your own car. And if there's some ways, if we can think creatively about sharing Colorado history and interaction with sites beyond Denver that's, you know, on the commuter bus from Boulder and and Colorado Springs, I think that would be absolutely wonderful. And I'd like to help History Colorado think about access. Tim Boddington, local guy. Uh, It occurs to me that Noel Black's podcast that he does would be a good place to have a sit down and be able to express uh, your ideas and your vision. And it would be good fun. So... I, I think that would be 
a great thing. And then I have a, a question that is sort of around the, uh, the local history, because being a professor at CC, then you're familiar with the Stroud family history mm -hmm. yes. and how important that is as a story. And so it's probably not necessarily a Colorado story yet, but it could be such a wonderful story to, to celebrate. But it suggests to me also, do you find, and it might be too early for you to, to have an experience like this, is there reluctance to tell stories? Well, I'll answer your question in two parts. Like one, I think it would be wonderful to do something about the Stroud family, but I haven't hadn't mentioned it because we hadn't reached out to them yet, but I have been talking. And, and Fill us in on who the Stroud family is. Oh, a multi-generational African-American Colorado Springs family. And I had started talking to some of my colleagues at History Colorado who are not aware of the stories. And I didn't even have a sense, like, I had heard, like, here and there. Um, but I really didn't have a sense of the scope and richness of their experiences and contributions until there was an event at Colorado College recognizing what we call the Stroud Scholars, mm. which is a way of providing a bridge for um, underrepresented, not just African-American, but local high school students to familiarize with themselves with Colorado College, to consider college a college education when they might not necessarily have that possibility on their radar, and that's a program that supports the students through summers, through three summers up through all through high school, and then if they successfully complete the program, they get um, free tuition to Colorado College. But it was only at an event recognizing the Stroud family's contributions that I realized the depth, the complexity of you know their experiences. Two of them who had gone to CC like back in the day, like their experiences, but I think it's definitely a rich and a very Colorado story that um, needs to be explored. But of course, we have to reach out to them. And then secondly, speaking of reluctance, I think there's often reluctance among minoritized or marginalized communities to involve themselves, to trust institutions enough with their stories. So um, there's certainly situations where people have felt burned by various institutions or government um, entities. And so I, I very much understand that, that distrust, especially in communities that have very strong intergenerational passings on of history and sharing knowledge, but just within the community. So I think it's really important, one, to build trust, to build that trust. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping that the new curator of Black History at History Colorado will be able to do. And also create an institution that is genuinely inclusive, that people can come to History Colorado exhibits and see themselves there. And I think that History Colorado has done an amazing job with that in recent years with exhibits like The Dry, The Sand Creek Massacre. Another one of my favorite exhibits was Around Rice and talking to, again, community people from different Asian 
diasporas, Asian and Pacific Islander diasporas, about the role of rice in their own cultures and how coming out west um, and to, to Colorado particularly, the certain adaptations of the rituals and traditions and conventions surrounding something as basic as rice. So I think that we have to earn trust, and an important way of earning trust is that people can come into any of our museums and see themselves there, and also to be curious about people not like ourselves, that it's a two-way learning street so that we can, um, if we have curiosity about another culture or others' history, that it takes place in an environment where we can freely ask questions and say, I don't understand, I want to know more, without feeling that we're trespassing or, you know, I don't have the right to ask or know that. So and, uh, that would be just a start. Uh, this is more of a philosophical question. I guess, um, what is more important to you in history? Like, searching for truths about our past through history or producing meaning in the present through history? I think they're part of the same project. I think the questions that we ask of our past are always rooted in our concerns, anxieties, emotions of the present. And so our connection to the past is always tethered in our presence, both individual and collective. And so I really don't see them as two separate enterprises because what drives even the collection of an archive, like what's worth preserving, you know, either in an archive, a, a physical archive, or as a site, you know, we have a historic preservation um, committee represented here. So I think they absolutely have to go together. And for me, it's not either or, but that's because I'm a black feminist scholar and it's always not either or, but both and. Well, Dr. Garcia, thanks so much for joining us today. Let's give her a hand. And I want to say thank you and I'm clapping for you. Thank you for coming and being part of this conversation. And I've gotten a lot of things to think about, both practical as well as more philosophical as the last question. So thank you for coming. Dr. Claire Oberon Garcia is the state historian and an English professor at Colorado College. We spoke in front of an audience at the Southern Colorado Public Media Center in Colorado Springs. A note, Colorado College holds the license for our sister station, KRCC. And History Colorado is a supporter of CPR News, but has no influence on editorial content. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.